never, ever marks the spot. I am altering the deep. Pray I don't alter it any further. week's episode of the top five report the podcast that's not sure if we should start until jonathan gets here he is coming right i mean i don't think we should start without him okay well i guess we'll start without jonathan uh, my name is drew i'll be your host for the evening along with me as always is my brother peter hey man Dear. how are you <laughs> pretty good you i'm all right i had a uh it's been a busy week um my adult D group just played its sixth week in a row it was fantastic i and en we ended on a killer cliffhanger and we're not going to get to play for a month <laughs> nice so, <laughs> awesome. i didn't know it was going to be i knew it was going to be at least a week or two i did not expect it to be a month when we were looking at our schedules and i'm like shoot but at the same time that's a hell of a cliffhanger to uh <laughs> you know Six week at, weeks in a row is definitely pretty good, too. Like, that's that's awesome. So I'm well, proud of I, you guys. <laughs> one of the girls who plays in my group, she told me that her uh, one of the girls that works in her leasing office. So she was talking to the girl that works in her leasing office. Um, apparently has a and d group that has met every Monday for five years. And I was like, good for them. And then I was also like, that's the dream. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know, so. Um, how's your week been? It's been a week. Um, not a lot of crazy stuff going on for me. I wish I wish I had like some crazy D and D stories or anything, but uh, no, I'm just kind of hanging out, <laughs> playing Nintendo. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah, just hanging out, playing Nintendo. All right. Yeah. Um. Well, what what did you get to watch this week? Yeah. Um. So. I kind of haven't watched anything new or uh, recommendable, but I did get a chance to see Garden Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. So that's kind of my one big is that thing. New this and week, recommendable? So. <laughs> no, that is. But nothing oh. else I watched was. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> How well, about you? I watched nothing new and recommendable, but I did watch Guardians. No, that's that one was definitely recommendable. So. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, I also watched Guardians, so I guess we could talk about that now. I watched one other thing, but we can talk about Guardians first, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So, first um, thoughts? Yeah, so this movie was interesting. Um, this movie started out, and uh, for most of the film, was tonally a lot different than the other Guardians movies. Um, if you think of the first two Guardians movies, they both start out with like a very funny but very action-packed sequence, some sort of crazy adventurous fight scene or something like that, set to upbeat retro music and stuff, and I kind of was expecting the same thing when we dived into this movie. 
But instead, we kind of got the dismal look of the state of nowhere and where all the characters are. And the opening montage, you know, it focuses on uh, Rocket Raccoon and you have like a uh, acoustic version of Creep by Radiohead going through the background. And it's just it felt kind of dismal. It felt kind of depressing. And I felt like the first half of the movie kind of felt that way. It was good. It was interesting. The uh, the sort of animal cruelty backstory of Rocket Raccoon was like really touching as well as really interesting. But it's one of those things and I don't want to get too spoilerific too soon. But by the time we get to the third act and uh, you essentially have the whole gang get back together and you have that giant battle scene at the end. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was cathartic. I think that was my one. It's not even a really a complaint. It's just more of an observation with this chapter in the Guardians of the Galaxy mythos is that it really took a long time just for it to feel like a Guardians movie. And not that that's bad. It's just not what I was expecting. And that it kind of sits weird with me because the one before I saw the movie, the one complaint I was seeing people say online is that. The movie's good, but the ending is way too long. That's what I saw that numerous times. And I honestly kind of felt like the beginning of the movie was too long. Like I felt like the early parts of the movie dragged on and were a little slow because it wasn't really until the hallway fight scene and the last battle of the film where I was like, they're all back together. Here's our team. Here's our friends. They're back at it again. And it finally just felt like, yes, all is right. This is the Guardians. And I honestly would have been fine if, like, the tail end of the film went on, like, another 10 or 15 minutes. Like, I thought it was a blast and so cathartic when you got to that point. So that's kind of what I was left with, where I was, like, the sort of... Uh, climax and resolution of the film, all the loose ends being tied and stuff, that stuff I didn't think really lingered on that much because it took so long for us to get that upbeat punch of, like, Guardian's goodness that we all wanted. Um, I have probably a million more thoughts if you want to get into, like, the visuals and directing and all that technical mumbo-jumbo, but that's kind of my takeaway from the movie overall. I don't know where you're sitting with this one, Drew. What's interesting, the way, like, that you had that takeaway. So, first off, we watched the um, trailer way too many times um, because we went to Comic-Con <laughs> and they played it in front true, of... True, true. And they played it in front of every single panel that we went to. Um, what I find interesting about going to see movies is I don't watch trailers repeatedly, except for this one because of a cer uh, uh, unfortunate circumstance... Um, I'll usually watch a trailer once and I'm good. I have this, and I'm not trying to like brag or sound arrogant, but I have a really good memory for watching things. So when I watch a trailer, I'm pretty much got it all like locked in, you know, and mm -hmm. I, all the jokes in the trailer landed, right. And I thought they were funny when I saw the trailer and I've always find it weird that when I go to a Marvel movie, specifically, I find this specifically with comic book films in general, all the jokes that are in the trailers, I guarantee probably 90% of the people in the audience for the film on an opening weekend saw the trailer for the movie. 
yet they still laugh at the lines from the trailer when they're watching the movie <laughs> as if they've never seen that bit before. It, right. I find it weird. I have always found that weird. I don't know. Because I'm like, the guy next to me was like, he sat down and he's talking to his girlfriend. And it's very clear he's a massive Guardians fan. He probably watched the trailer 12 times based on the way he was talking about the movie before it started. He was laughing incredibly hard at all the moments <laughs> from the trailer. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I think it's, I but could say this joking. Cool. Like, you know, to each your own. <laughs> I could uh, say this jokingly, but I feel like that's a little bit of a mob mentality. Like you're in, once you're like in a movie theater, like that guy probably wasn't laughing at those jokes the 12th time that he watched the trailer on his iPhone or his iPad. But right. once you're in the movie theater and you're surrounded by fellow movie, movie go- goers, you kind right. of become part of the collective subconscious and then you start laughing at those jokes again. So I think Maybe. it's a little bit, I and I, I say mob mentality, mentality facetiously, because I think it's more just like you're in that upbeat experience of being in the yeah. theater. Maybe. You know what I mean? Maybe. Um, the opening of the film, which I think is interesting, is, you remember that scene where they land on the planet, they land on, uh, Counter-Earth in the movie, and, yeah. um, they, and the girl walks up and Drax hits her in the face with the ball. That's in the trailer. Yes. That's in the trailer. I honestly thought after watching the trailer, that's how the, the movie started. <laughs> because there's the shot of Gamora, <laughs> sorry, not Gamora, there's the shot of Nebula carrying uh, Star Lord, and I thought to myself, that's gonna be a really touching, sad moment. Not how I thought the movie was gonna start, and that he was drunk. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was like, True. oh, well, there you go. Um, so here's all right. So this is probably, in my opinion, the most James Gunn of the Guardians movies. Um, and I say that because when you look at James Gunn's directing style and visual language and all that stuff, I feel like this one is the most James Gunn that the Guardians movies or the Guardians adventures we've gone on have been, um, even down to the level of gore. Um, because like when they take off, when uh, I'm going to spoil the crap out of this. I hope you saw the movie. Um, if you look at box office dollars, everyone who's going to see it has seen it. So when they take off the uh, high evolutionary's face, and the gore, that gory scene. Yeah. One, yeah. I didn't expect to see that in a Marvel film. Um, I know we saw Red Skull, but come on, that doesn't compare. I wasn't expecting that in this movie at all. Um, but for James Gunn, I expect that. You know, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I said that. Um, also, with some of the monstrous mutations and the creatures and all that stuff, that is totally a James Gunn thing to do. So I was like, I'm down, that makes sense, you know, as opposed to Marvel. Um the your point about how the movie started compared to the other ones, you got to remember that in a really weird way, this is technically the fifth Guardians of the Galaxy movie we've gotten because we had two Avengers films in the middle that were very Guardians heavy. So we got Guardians 1, 2, Infinity War, which was half of it was a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And then Endgame, which had so much Guardians of the Galaxy stuff in it anyway, you know, Um so when you put that all together, now we're watching Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which in a weird way is Guardians 5. And then, but at the beginning of this movie, there was no character development that was needed. So we started in a somber place because, you know, Peter Quill's dealing with the the Gamora stuff and they're picking up the pieces and kind of calling nowhere home. And I'm like, at this point in the story, I didn't feel there was any character development needed. 
it all comes down to telling Rocket's story, which they touched on in the original Guardians movie. So now we got the story to, in a way, close out the Guardians story and usher in a new direction for them and at the same time say goodbye to some characters, if you will. So I thought it was kind of a brilliant first act. Um, the uh, the ending where you say that some of the um, some of the criticism was that the ending was too long. There was a point where I felt like the ending just never stopped in the same way Lord of the Rings does, uh, where you get to the end of Return See, of the King and you're like, okay, okay, when is the credits going? I was literally like, credits should roll right here. Nope. Okay, we got another scene. See, see, that's credits. what I didn't get at all because what was that point though? Because to me it was like. So much of the loose ends to me seem to be directly tied to the last battle or like the immediate aftermath. And like, I know we got the scene with um, like Star Lord, Peter Quill goes down to meet up with his grandfather and stuff. But other than that, I, I really didn't think there was any scenes that like lingered on longer than oh, what I, I expected. You know? I didn't think they lingered on. I just every time I thought they were going to roll the credits, they played it. They had, they had there was another scene to watch. <laughs> that's what i mean I literally was like, they, should be, they should be rolling credits right nope i guess they're not gonna do it and here come credits nope okay and here come cre- no okay we're gonna go again okay. <laughs> that's that, what that, I, that's you know that's fair enough i just didn't i guess i didn't get that reaction from it at all like the kind of final montage of the film to me remind was pretty close to the ending of guardians 2 where you have like a long montage and you have you know, you zoom in on each character and they all have like their moment and stuff like I, I didn't get that reaction, but I I understand that you did. And I know like a lot of people online were saying the same thing. That's just not how yeah, sure. I reacted to it. Well, overall, the visual stuff, the special effects, all that stuff was fantastic. The um, really weird flesh planet that they had to go to. Yeah, that was that, that was, was cool. really cool. Um, Nathan Fillion's cameo was fantastic. I'm so glad Nathan Fillion got to do more than just be like a CGI character um, and a voice. Um, that was great. Um, the High Evolutionary, literally one of the best villains that the Marvel movies have ever had. So awesome. Um, I really feel like that guy had more potential, um, but <laughs> such a cool villain. Well, why there's, you, there's why people online. What's that? What's that? <laughs> Because there's people online who are saying that he should re- uh, replace Kang right now, which I think is is really funny. To you know, me, he I am not opposed to that at all. <laughs> well, I'm not either because he's actually I. It's too soon to say, but he is up there with like probably top three Marvel villains right now for me. Like he was so good. Um, I don't know the actor's name who played the High Evolutionary, but amazing performance. But he was just is- such. A I good... know who it is, but his name is incredibly difficult to pronounce, and I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Fair enough. He was he was just such a good villain, and he was so evil, and uh, he, his ideology, like, really fueled his motivations. Like, he wasn't sympathetic, and it was one of those things where you could understand where he's coming from, but you can also completely, completely disagree with what he's trying to do. And I... For me, my favorite villains are the villains you love to hate, and I think they really captured that with this character. So I yeah. I loved this villain so much. Yeah, they um, nailed that. He was, and that's the thing: the best villains are the ones you hate and you love to hate them, and 
the, the way you said that is perfect, but he literally, yeah. God, he was such a cool villain. And he was chewing the scenery too. And I was literally like, part of me always wanted to like get back to him when I was watching the movie. It was like, yeah, yeah. Guardians. Can we go back to the high evolutionary? I want to know more about this. You know, I thought, <laughs> right. I kind of wanted a little bit of his backstory. Like, is he a celestial, um, you know, like, was he, is he a character like ego or, um, uh, the collector or like how far back does this guy go? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. And I like how he kind of, nice. in a way, cyborged himself to what he was. Um, yeah, yeah, I just, I just, I really enjoyed the movie. Um, the, uh, did you watch it? I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we could, we really could go on and on about this movie. Like, I think I have more thoughts, but I also could say more in the future, but the one thing I did want to comment on, because you said you did think the special effects in this movie were really well done. And I actually really agree. For a Marvel uh, movie? Absolutely. Because the Marvel movies lately, in my opinion, have been very CG heavy and this did not feel that way. Exactly. Because that's, that's the thing is like, I love that James Gunn made the choice to include a lot of practical effects in this film. There was a lot of characters with prosthetic face masks and makeup jobs and uh, stuff like that. And it's one of those things where when you finally get a fully CGI character, when it comes to like Rocket and the other animals that were being experimented on or towards the end of the film, when you like when you first come up to the high evolutionaries uh, base on counter Earth and you have that like pig creature and that other creature guarding the door i don't know was that creature supposed to be some kind of a bird or something like that well the one was definitely a pig for sure and the other one yeah. looked like a weird eagle thing right right <laughs> so <laughs> but those two characters that the cgi was so it looked so believable and i don't know yeah. if it's because the cg was balanced with the practical effects or if it's one of these things where they use the practical effects where they're appropriate and then they saved their budget for other CG effects. But I just thought that was all handled so well. And it is true. Like, I remember watching Infinity War and Endgame and thinking there were so many villains that were full CG and they didn't have to be. Like, some of the, some of, like, Th Thanos's, uh The children you know, of Thanos? Yeah, some of them didn't have to be CG, but they were all like full CG characters. And I was like, they look cool, but some of this could be handled with like a really good makeup job. And I think of like the state of practical effects right now. There's a lot of really cool, believable stuff you can do. And I just thought it was awesome that James Gunn didn't ignore that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, first ever F-bomb in a Marvel movie. Is that true? Yep. <laughs> um, the language was pretty brutal the whole time. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the other Marvel movie where they had the F-bomb, they cut it. It was like, what the? And then they cut Nice. And it was, was Spider-Man Homecoming. It's when Aunt May discovered Aunt May, movie. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. And But it's funny. The first ever F-bomb in a Marvel movie, and it was so warranted. It was awesome. Like, <laughs> I don't think any other dialogue would have worked there the way that move that line did so <laughs> um and it was such a funny moment you the button next to the thing you push it and then what well you <laughs> <laughs> um so good um yeah his it, it was so funny that he lost his patience on nebula it was great 
Um, but yeah, dude, I really enjoyed the movie. I had a great time watching it. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't really have anything else to add there. So yeah, that's kind of my final thoughts is like, um, I love the Guardians movies. Like, I think they might be my favorite Marvel movies. I'm not really sure, but... And I thought this was, like, such a good send-off for the characters. It was such a good movie and such a good time. And, like, I wasn't, like, necessarily saying the beginning of the movie was bad. It was just a lot, like, tonally much different than what I expected. And I do understand where the characters were at this point in their story. Like, why the movie started off that way. It just kind of... You know, the first scene of a movie definitely sets the tone for the film. And it was a little bit like, I think I was expecting like the fun to start a lot sooner, if that makes sense. But otherwise, I still thought it was a beautiful film and had such a good time with this one, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so moving on. So that's really all you got a chance to watch? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) The other thing that I got to watch was Babylon. Um. Babylon came out in 2022. I finally got a chance to watch it. It came out so close to the Oscars that I didn't get a chance to squeeze it in. Um, it's about, it's with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie are the two big actors are the two big names in this. And it's about, it takes place in the twenties and it's about the transition from silent film to using actual spoken dialogue and film or what they call back then they call them talkies. So it's that transition in the film industry. Um, Brad Pitt is an actor, for, is, is a silent film era actor, and so is Margot Robbie. And they're both making their respective movies, whatnot. They know each other. They hang out in the same celebrity circles and go to the same parties and all that stuff. And they're all dealing with this new trend. And Brad Pitt's all like, we got to do something new and different and bigger. And how do we make this, you know, such a better, you know, how do we move the industry forward? And then they find out about the idea of putting actual dialogue in movies instead of the silent film style. So it's all about that. Um, nice. If you're a film person, you're going to be very interested in this movie because there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, when you get to see what a silent film set, like a soundstage looks like, it's crazy the amount of um, stuff that went on. They would shoot. It's it's really cool. There's this area like that they have. It's like, hey, we're going to the movie set today. And you get there and there's like 30 sets because it's silent film, so they don't have to worry about any other noise. They can just shoot. And they have, like, live... Or- so there's a scene where they have, like, this battle scene for this war movie. So they're trying to shoot, and the guys are all, like, running across and stuff, and the camera pans, and you see the live orchestra playing all the music while they're, like, battling it out. And right. You know? Um, and then they'd cut to another one, and these two guys are, like, fighting in a jungle for the sequence. Or, like, these people are in a bar talking for a sequence and stuff. And it's... Just really, really kind of cool to look at. Um, the movie opens with probably the most bizarre, crazy, wild um, Eyes Wide Shut party that puts Eyes Wide Shut to shame. Um, so I was like, what did I do? <laughs> I literally you don't was like, that a lot. you don't. And I was literally like, what did I just turn on? Because I had no idea the movie was going to open like that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, right. But but from a direction standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint, the amount of people, the amount of crazy stuff that was in that sequence from the band to the people doing the things that they were doing to the costuming to the what to the people running around like serving drinks and food and beverages and like all the stuff that was going on at this um, Eyes Wide Shut party um, from a direction standpoint. Could you like I'm watching this going. 
And it's like a lot of long takes, like long camera takes. And I'm literally, they had to yell action. All this stuff had to happen at once simultaneously. One person messes up and they have to reshoot the whole sequence. And I'm like, kind of like studying that bit. It was crazy, but it was really cool. Um, nice. The first act of the movie is great. The second act of the movie is great. The third act of the movie gets really dark and weird and bizarre. And I really feel like the third act of the movie wrecked the entire movie. <laughs> um, if you, so I'm going to say this, if you are into film, give it a shot. If otherwise, I don't know if I'd recommend the movie. I really don't like, it got really, really bizarre. <laughs> it got so weird. And I'm like, what am I watching? Where did this go? Like what, what, the decisions you had to make in the writer's room or in the director chair or whatever to get from where you were to where you are now makes little to no sense to me. <laughs> um, okay. But then again, Hollywood's a crazy place and the weird stuff they go to and the weird CD celebrity parties and stuff like that. That's why I'm like, what is happening here? Um, well, that, now you're making me curious, but I know there's like the classic, um, I don't know who wrote it, but there's the classic book like Hollywood Babylon that's just all about like all the movie stars and directors and producers you look up to are really like a bunch of seedy people and like the book just focuses on like all the all the bad debaucherous stuff that all these like classic actors yeah. and stuff yeah. have been up and to that is so. exactly that's exactly what was going on it is crazy and that's why like that's probably why it opened with the eyes wide shut party that it did right um, there it does sound Oh, keep going. Go ahead, Sorry. Go no, 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 I was going to say it does sound interesting. And like, I kind of want to watch it just because you were talking about how the classic movie sets were like so big and uh, they had to get so much right. And they had like a live orchestra and stuff. That stuff sounds really super interesting because I know like when you watch like an old classic like musical or something, like if you watch like Wizard of Oz or Babes in Toyland or like any of like those old like classic cinema musicals you really get the feel that you're watching more of a broadway show than a movie like if you go back and watch wizard of oz and watch like just the munchkin village sequence and you're just like sitting there like okay i've been watching like a 15 minute shot the craft that's going into the costumes and the set work is so amazing i wouldn't be surprised if they had a live orchestra on there and like it's kind of cool that the movie it sounds like kind of showcases that a little bit like the amount of craft and uh, just performance from the yeah. actors, the orchestra, everything that had to go th into like a single shot of one of these classic films. Uh, really interesting stuff. Um, I didn't want to derail you there, but sounds oh, really okay. cool, you know? Okay. There is my favorite scene in the entire movie. And this is, it's, it's phenomenal. It's it, first off, it's one of the funniest scenes in the movie because, and it progressively gets funnier, but um, it's, it's so well written, so well acted, so well just executed. Like this is like it's literally like you could watch this one scene from the movie and be like, God, that was brilliant. Um, so Margot Robbie's character, when she when you first see her act, it's in a silent film. Right. And the director is giving her direction and she's like, I need you to hit your mark. You're going to talk to the guy. You're going to flirt with him a little bit or make it look like you're flirting with him. Someone's going to come to the door. You're going to turn and it's going to trigger tears. And she's like, okay. So literally like you watch and boom, tears, waterworks. And the director's like, okay, hold on. 
can you do that? But more tears, like full gushing. And she's like, yeah. And then she does it like on cue, but she like snaps out like the way she snaps from like emotions. It's really kind of interesting to watch. And then she'll be like, can you do it with one single tear? She's like, yeah, I can do it with one single tear. Boom. One single tear. Um, it was, it's probably, it's a really cool sequence, but the sequence I'm talking about, which was my favorite was, like I said, it's the transition from silent to talkies. So Margot Robbie is her first role in a movie where she has to do dialogue. So it's a, it's like the set is like a college dorm. So she's like coming into her college dorm for the first time with her suitcase, setting down her suitcase, and she's going to go make a phone call at the desk. That's literally the scene. And, um, she's like in the hallway, like outside the door, getting ready for the action cue. And she's got the script and she's like looking over lines and a little nervous. Right. And, the director and their wait, they're sitting there. They have the camera in like this foam soundproof box. So the camera doesn't make any noise that the microphones can pick up. The sound guy is on this scaffolding unit way above everything away. So none of his electrical equipment is like making sound for the microphones. Everyone is dead silence. There's all these like quiet please on set, quiet on set signs everywhere. And the director goes action. And Margot Robbie walks out and she drops and she said she's supposed to like hit her mark and drop the suitcase and she drops the suitcase and the sound guy freaks out because it squelched the mic and he comes running down. So they have to start <laughs> over. So she hits her mark. She misses her mark and drops the suitcase on the mark, but she's off. So the mic didn't pick her up properly. So the sound guy freaks out again. And the guy <laughs> in the booth of the camera is like, it's too hot in here. I need a drink of water. And they're like, get back in the booth and get ready for the shot. <laughs> um. So she's like, can you move the mic? And he's like, it's going to take about a half an hour because I have to do all these rigs because they're not using boom mics yet. Yeah. So they have to reset all the microphones if they need, if they want to change the the blocking. So then they're like, okay, so do it again. So Margot Robbie goes out, she comes back in, she hits her mark properly. And some guy walks in the set door from behind him through one of the quiet pleas and they freak out and yell at the guy. And it's this crazy comedy of errors where like Margot Robbie gets to her mark every time she gets to her mark there's a new problem and there's a lot of f-bombs and screaming at each other and yelling and everyone no one make any noise like nice (laughs) it's such an amazing (laughs) sequence and then they get the shot like I'm gonna spoil this they get the shot like perfect and then they go to check on the camera guy and he had a heart attack in the booth because it was too hot (laughs) oh god like and you're just like, oh, my God, like you couldn't have written it any better. But it was so funny level of stress because it was their first time working with dialogue and like have to get everything perfect. <laughs> that's a, that's hilarious. It was so funny. It was probably like maybe 10 takes and everyone was like super on edge. It was awesome. Nice. That's the best part of the movie for me. Otherwise, it just got so weird. But if you get a chance to watch it, I will say it's an incredibly long movie. It is Avatar length. I was not expecting that when I sat down to watch it. So. Wow. OK. Uh, but hey, we went on way longer than I expected, so let's talk about some news. <laughs> let's go for it. Okay, we are dealing with a writer's strike. So, there's going to be a lot of this discussion, and I don't know how long this is going to go, and I expect the writer's strike to go well into the summer, so it's going to completely mess up um, fall television. So, here's what I got so far. Marvel's Blade has hit pause due to writer strike. 
Um, right, the right strike is taking a bit out of a bite out of Blade. Marvel Studios is shutting down pre-production on its vampire thriller starring Mahershala Ali, which was set to begin filming next month in Atlanta. Um, it's on pause. Writer strikes to blame. Um, and I know, and like as we talk, you're gonna here we go. Duffer Brothers <laughs> has hit has halted all production on Stranger Things season five due to writer strike. <laughs> all right then. Um, yeah, the production will pause because the writing does not stop when the filming begins. Um, that's because they need the writers. They, they might have to change scripts. They might have to do stuff like that. Um, let's see here. Game of Thrones spinoff The Hedge Knight, which we talked about a few weeks ago, has shut down production due to the writer's strike. Um, like I said, there's going to be a lot of this, so I'm just kind of like, yeah, this is the, <laughs> this is the people need to understand how heavily affected they're going to be because of this writer strike. And I think people don't realize, um, that this is kind of a detrimental thing in a way. Um, Daredevil Born a Gun halted, production halted due to writer strike. Um, like I said, some of these are quick hits, but it's like, holy crap. Um, however, here's an interesting one for you. Um, Judd Apatow says studios uh, not want to quickly may not want to quickly resolve the writer strike. They've probably been planning this for years. Check this out. In an interview with Variety, Judd Apatow said, I think they probably already know what they're going to bend on. Um, I would assume they already know what date this is going to end. They've probably been planning it for years. Apatow continues. I always think that whatever happens, they could have figured it out already. When these things conclude, you never go. I understand why it took that long. It's never something in, so inventive and groundbreaking that you think, oh, people needed to go to war for months over it. It's always very obvious position. So that's what's scary about it is that there is a solution, but I'm not sure that all the business interests are interested in getting it quickly. Um, he then says, uh, that aspect of it complicates everything that we're trying to do. We're not in the middle of anything other than writing. Um, Let's see here. Did I just mess that up? Okay, here we go. We're like Twitter's employees that if they want to save money, they just get rid of 80% of the workers. He said, that's why there's an existential problem. If the ecosystem as writers doesn't exist, no one will learn how to do it. No one will be able to survive doing it. And then when everyone will go, well, maybe I'll write video games. Maybe I'll write, go home and make TikToks at home and become an influencer. A lot of creative people can do other things, so you don't want the whole system to collapse. Um, and then Apatow says, fine, and this is the end of it. We have a system that, um, we have a system now that does not reward success for a lot of these projects. If you make something and a billion people watch it, you don't make more money than if it was a disaster. That's not good for creativity mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of motivation for the creative people because people work really hard to create some sort of cushion for their lives. All of our work is ebb and flow. The successes pay for time when things are going well. Sometimes they go well and sometimes they don't. But you can live off of the time you wrote something that had a lot of residual fees paid out. It's always been a tremendous career, but you take, but if you take away most of the linchpins, it's a career that a majority of people can't survive. Um, it was really interesting to read that and just see what Judd Apatow had to say. Um, if you don't know who Judd Apatow is, he made like 40 year old virgin and uh, knocked up and uh, super bad. And, you know, um, thoughts on that, Peter? Yeah, I mean, the whole like I feel like he was being kind of cryptic a little bit with the whole like 
everything's been planned out and we know when this is going to be yeah. g- begin and end. And I don't necessarily know even what he was getting at. So a lot of that stuff makes me really wonder the specifics of what he's trying to hint at there. Yep. Um, but honestly, my takeaway is it kind of sounds like the music industry, to be honest. Like it sounds like music went to streaming, I believe, before like TV and movies did. And it sounds like kind of the same thing playing out where like in music, you have your like top 10 artists who have it made. You know, you have Drake and Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran and whoever else who like are set just because they're like the top 10 artists and they get that many streams and they're making millions of dollars. But it's like everybody below that kind of has to be an influencer. Like you see bands on social media, they have to be like a social media uh, influencer as well as being a touring artist, as well as being like a merchandise hub. And like, I kind of feel like Judd Apatow is getting at like, if you're a television or movie creator, you kind of have to start doing that the same thing. And uh, it kind of sucks that it sounds like that's the way things that are are going. But at the same time, it makes me feel like maybe there's going to be a renaissance of just really cool indie stuff to come out of this. But I, I don't really know. Like, I feel like this is untread territory. I don't know what to make of all of it but just his wow. comments really reminded me of a lot of the more independent like rock bands and stuff that i follow kind of what i hear them say if that makes sense agreed and i'll say this ben affleck and matt damon are a perfect example of kind of i think what you're trying to say because when they won their oscars for goodwill hunting the big reaction from that the big takeaway that a lot of studios had was if you can write you can make your own work. Yeah. You know, and which brings me to a quick, which, which is a great segue for a news story because James Gunn, um, wrote Superman legacy. And yeah. So James Gunn, the director wrote Superman legacy. He didn't have a team of writers. He wrote it. So he wrote a movie that he's going to go make for a studio. And that I don't think is getting halted production because he wrote it, his script's done. He's ready to roll. And if he needs to change something, he's probably going to change it in the script himself. Um, and when I say it segues nicely, James Gunn teased that Crypto will make a live action appearance in Superman Legacy. <laughs> Is that a segue? <laughs> well, I, not really, but it was just the, the writing aspect James Gunn wrote. wrote Absolutely. It. Yeah, yeah, I know so. what you mean, though. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's one. Of, well, just to comment on the writers thing a little bit more, it does really make me curious, like. It makes me wonder, like, who really who does have to abide by the strike and who doesn't? And if you're writing something on your own, is that valid? Can you keep writing and tweaking things? And uh, it sounds like James Gunn is doing that, which makes sense because he's working on his own stuff. But at the same time, he's working on some of the biggest upcoming mainstream superhero movies (laughs) to come out soon. So it's really weird at the same time. So, yeah. Well, one company that's going to heavily benefit from this writer strike and not having content to watch is Critical Role. Um, right. I yeah. I bring this up, one, because I'm a fan of theirs. But two, uh, they announced a couple weeks ago that they have their new game systems releasing. They have one that's meant to be more of like a it's an RPG, but it's one that meant to be have like a one shot 
like, you know, series of one shots kind of gameplay mentality, sit down at the table cool. and play yeah. instead of ongoing campaigns um, like D&D is. Or, and they have another one they're coming out where it's going to be meant for the ongoing long-term campaign style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really great. Critical Role announced today a show, a new ongoing series that'll accompany. So to understand how it's going to accompany their main show, which right now is campaign three, the adventures of bells hells, they run every Thursday night. So they record when we record, but the last week of the month, they always take off. So it's literally like a week break and we get a week off and then we jump back in. And we get three weeks of critical role, right? On the week off, what they're going to start doing is they just announced a brand new show called Candela Obscura, which um, it's a new show that's going to take place during that week off. And it's going to be based on their game system that they created. So you know, but because it's a role-playing game, it's not, and it's streaming, it will not have any script. So there's no writers because they create the content as they play, right? Um, which is incredible. Um, it does make me realize that their shows like Vox Machina and the Mighty Nine animated series are probably going to be on hold because those actually have writers' rooms, which is True. okay. Yeah, but because of the content that they're pumping out every week. I think it's okay that that's the case. I just think it's really cool. And there's a trailer for this. If you like, I pulled it up on YouTube. There's a trailer for this Candela Obscura, which here's the thing. It's for a role-playing game streaming series. If you watch the trailer, it certainly doesn't look that way. And it looks amazing. And I'm literally like, I'm in, let's do this. And it's going to be based on a horror genre, um, mystery, like almost like a, uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of a mystery horror genre role-playing game thing with crazy monsters and stuff running around a city. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, that's, that's this sounds pretty great. Fun. This sounds yeah. great. Let's do this. So Is I'm it going to be like I, a Victorian time period sort of yeah, thing? Or do absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. It looks cool. Like, So I'm just like, good for them. And I'm literally like in the midst of this writer strike looking for stuff to keep up with. This sounds awesome. So, yeah, this is what I was talking about like last week, though, and we talked about this is like I wasn't sure, but I hope that what we get out of this writer strike is a lot of just really independent gems. And I can't <laughs> believe that one week later we're already talking about some coming out of the woodwork. So that is that is amazing. I know. Well, let's talk about some things that we know are coming for sure and haven't been halted. Um, Beetlejuice 2 is set the set for a fall release date of 2024. Um, September okay. 6th, Sounds about 2024 right. specifically, that's a script that we knew was done, so they're probably moving forward with it. And this is where the writer strike will not affect, um, it won't affect some things because they're done and ready to roll. Um, the only problem is if they, they're kind of locked into a script then, so if they need a rewrite, they're that's where things could happen. <laughs> so <laughs> is go, is yeah. it written by Tim Burton, though? Because Possibly. he could probably that's the, just... That's the part I could probably look up, but I don't know if it'll be... But I don't know if that info will be available yet because IMDb kind of jumps the gun sometimes when they do yeah. credits. And then if something changes, they might have to go back and change. So I don't actually know for sure. 
Because I, I was just going to say he could always, like, tweak stuff under the table and maybe the writer's strike doesn't sure. need to know about it, you know? Kind of like the James Gunn stuff we were just talking about, you know sure. what I mean? Um. Well, did you ever see the movie Lord of War with Nicolas Cage? I feel like I might have. Nicolas Cage, Jared Leto, they're basically, it's basically, they play arms dealers and they're selling guns and doing gun running and all that stuff and getting like filthy rich and stuff. Okay, really, yeah. really, really cool movie. Like it really is. I was kind of blown away. It was kind of like, a, let's watch this. Sounds kind of cool. Man, I was just impressed. That's a cool, that's a really interesting, cool movie. Um, anyway, Nicolas Cage will be returning for Lord of War 2. Um, which, <laughs> why not? <laughs> why not? I mean, let's be real. Um, if they if they make it nearly as cool as that original, I'm totally in. But we'll see. All right. Um, House of the Dragon will have at least three seasons. Um, when they originally talked, when the show originally launched, it was the possibility of a four season show. Um, minimum three. That's totally fine. Showrunner Ryan Condal shared that the length of House of the Dragon and the number of seasons it will have are yet to be determined. It'll have more than two, but that's part of the discussion we're having where you uh, appropriately end a series in a way that doesn't feel clipped, but you also don't feel dragged out. Um, right. Which I think is uh, great to hear. Um, I was down when they said four seasons. I'm like, that sounds great to cover that story that they're trying to tell. Great. I'm totally in. Um, I was in anyway, but it's that you don't want to overstay your welcome thing. And when you're telling extra stuff within that universe and you want to tell these pockets of stories around things, do it. So don't. But I don't think we needed 12 seasons of House of the Dragon on top of an already existing Game of Thrones. Then we have a Hedge Knight coming and then Jon Snow coming and then, you know, so. I, I welcome it all. Yeah, <laughs> all the spinoff series seasons they can throw at me. But I, I do understand what you're saying. Like, don't want to overstay your welcome is a perfect way of putting it. But also, like, they just really need to make sure they nail the ending. Because, Drew, I know you and I both appreciated the last season of Game of Thrones, yeah. but a lot of people didn't. And they do kind of have to make sure they end House of the Dragon on a really strong note, in my opinion. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's talk about getting something right, in my opinion, and ending on a strong note. Actually, let's talk about something that needs to start on a strong note, and this comes to Star Wars. Um, Ray, the new Ray movie that got announced at um, Star Wars Celebration, which will take place, will be placed around, focused around Ray, uh, 15 years after the rise of the Skywalker. Um, Ray's new Star Wars movie will question how many Jedi still exist. Speaking to Empire, Empire Magazine, that is, Kathleen Kennedy said, <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy's first order said, the first order has fallen. The Jedi are in chaos. There's even a question of how many exist anymore. And Ray's building the new order based on the text that she was given and that Luke imparted on her. Okay. That sounds great. This is me. All right. I don't like criticizing Star Wars because I'm such a Star Wars fan, but there's one thing that has always bothered me very heavily about the sequel trilogy. And that is the state of the galaxy. When you watch the original trilogy, 
you know from the beginning of the movie, the very first movie, throughout the other two, so New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and The Return of the Jedi, that there is a galactic civil war going on. You also know that the Imperial Senate has been completely disbanded, and it's all under the Imperial Empire Emperor's control, and they're using the, the Moth generals to guard their territories and all that stuff. You have a political line in the sand. Yeah. When you watch the prequel films, you know that the Jedi are in their prime. They have a Jedi Council. You actually get to see the Republic Senate. You get to see the government. And then you get to move into the following films, which they talk about the Separatist government versus the Republic Senate, for, or the Galactic Senate, versus, um, you know, and you get to see, and if you watch the Clone Wars, you get to see a lot of that stuff. There is a state of the galaxy, and you know what's going on at all times. You move into the Clone Wars territory, you know what's going on, it's wartime, whatever. When you start Episode 7, you have no clue what the state of the galaxy is. It's been 30 years since Return of the Jedi, and you have no idea what is going on in the galaxy. You know that the Jedi don't really exist. Luke is a myth, apparently, you know? Um, Han Solo is like, oh, hey, you're Han Solo. Yeah, I am. Like, whatever. The Resistance is battling the First Order. Where'd they come from? Who are the Resistance? Um, where's the central government? Well, there is a new republic. You get that out of dialogue. But where's the new where's the new capital? They mentioned the yeah. Hosnian Prime system. Is that Coruscant or is that a whole nother planet? Like there's not enough to know what's going on politically in the series. Right. So you yeah. get this quote from Kathleen Kennedy. The First Order have fallen. The Jedi are in chaos. There's even a question of how much like. But what's the state of the galaxy? Right. You know, how does all that fit? <laughs> you know, the First Order have fallen. Cool. So is the New Republic just thriving now? Because they were pretty almost at the end of the being wiped out, even at the end of Rise of Skywalker. So I, I am totally down for whatever they do because I have a blind love for Star Wars and I know that. But I also know that, like, there are things that I wanted answered in that um, sequel trilogy that I never got answered, like yeah. the state of the, like the state of the galaxy, and even Episode Seven being a nice usher in to get us back in the swing for Star Wars was great. But when we get to the other movies, there's still no state of the galaxy. It's um, I don't want to like, I don't know if I'm addressing the elephant in the room, but I feel like the absence of George Lucas really does factor into this. And uh, I just say yes. that because yes, you think you think about the prequels and how much people complained that you think of think of episode one on its own. People complained about hearing about Nemoidians and trade boycotts and uh, the Galactic Senate and all that. They said it's way too political. And they also complained about midichlorians a lot. And uh, George Lucas, I don't know. I know I've heard interviews where he said that the. His his vision for a sequel trilogy was going to actually focus on a microscopic story. And uh, I think of midichlorians. I don't know what he meant by that. I always was really curious what his vision was for the future of Star Wars in that way. But knowing all these things, it really makes me realize that George Lucas had a vision for his universe. And he had a vision from the microscopic, the atomic level 
all the way to the macro political level. And uh, as much as people didn't like a lot of that stuff, the one thing you can't say is that he didn't have a vision and that he didn't care. And I think it is really interesting with the sequel trilogy. I have a feeling that Disney probably wanted to differentiate themselves from the prequels. They probably didn't want to focus a lot on politics. And that's fine because they wanted to make some really fun adventure films. And I think we did get some really great moments in that regard. But as you're saying, you do need to have that underbelly of the bigger picture present when you're setting up your universe. And uh, not to say that they do or don't have that, but I do understand what you're saying. Like Kathleen Kennedy's remarks on the state of the galaxy for this new Ray film seem (laughs) extremely vague. And you're just like, okay, well, I'm not really sure what any of that means. I'm not sure that she even gave us any new information that we didn't know. And then at the same time, you have Dave Filoni and you have the Mandalorian and the Ahsoka show and stuff, and you know he is going to be doing a crossover movie, as far as we know, for like those Disney Plus shows. And it seems like, I don't know if it's been confirmed, but it seems like they're taking a lot of inspiration from the um, extended universe from the Mm -hmm. old, like expanded universe for star Wars. And so that's why they're going to probably have like Ahsoka and uh, like Admiral Thrawn's going to take a big role in that and stuff. And uh, like that whole, like shadows of the empire world, I kind of feel like Disney should probably just go back to focusing on that instead of this weird, vague Ray sequel movie state of the universe they're talking about and i don't know if like i'm not trying to be too negative about that but that's just kind of where my uh you know where i'm reading this whole thing right now yeah no i'm with you and um that that's i don't necessarily i don't not want a ray movie right right yeah exactly you know i i want to see another ray movie but I want to know what the heck's going on. <laughs> I guess I guess what I was trying to say, like to sum it up maybe a little more concisely, is as far as the state of the Star Wars galaxy right now, I feel like what Dave Filoni seems to be working on sounds a lot more interesting and concise than what Kathleen Kennedy just told us about the Ray movie. So that's probably kind of where my thoughts yeah. are, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know. It's just interesting. And we're going to see how it all plays out. But it's also just like, okay, come on, you know, like answer the answer the state of the galaxy question and I will be happy. Absolutely. You know, so. All right. Well, let's if you don't mind, let's move on and talk about tonight's list, shall we? Yeah, let's go for it. I did want to say lastly, because we glossed over it, but. Hell yeah, Crypto is going to be in the new Superman movie. I'm so pumped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Sounds awesome. So, yeah. But yeah, we can roll the thing if you want. Yeah. All right, you said it. Let's roll the thing. And now for the top five. Uh, Peter, this was, well, uh, my list, so I guess I'll uh, explain it. Um, <laughs> the, I thought it'd be kind of cool to talk collector's editions and, like, collector box set type stuff. Because sometimes sometimes collector's editions come with cool little trinkets, 
sometimes it's an issue of having the content all together in one shot. Sometimes it's, you know, like, for example, like I got all kinds of excited when Indiana Jones released the box set of all the movies. Like, I got to go get that, you know, or it's like, sweet, the Back to the Future trilogy is out in one box set. Let's go grab it. Collector's edition. Boom. Got it. There's video game collector's editions I've purchased because of the trinkets you get with them. And some I've gotten where there's a spin and surprise trinket that I didn't know about. Um, But in terms of being a collector, I just thought this would be kind of cool to talk about. So, yeah. Right on. So I found this list pretty hard because I I love collecting things, um, but a lot of my collecting habits tend to be, especially as I get older, tend to be more collecting of like IP, collecting of like reading and watching material. And so like I'm less likely to buy like a DVD box set because it looks good on a shelf as I am to just buy the box set because I want to watch whatever's in that box set, if that makes sense. So like a lot of times I'll go like the cheaper route, like I'll just buy the regular DVD Blu-ray as, as opposed to the collector's edition, just because I just care more about the movie itself than the collector's aspect. And I hope that makes sense. And a lot of it's really more just because I don't want to spend, because I'm cheap and don't want to spend the money on it. So at (laughs) first I was having some trouble with my list, but then it came down to the fact that, I did the weekly thing. I don't know if I don't know about you, Drew, but once a week, I always peruse my DVD shelf. I go through all the titles on the DVDs for whatever list we're doing to see what did I forget? You know, what's the thing that's on my shelf sure. that I forget for this week to mention? And once I did that, I realized I had a lot more sort of like DVD box sets that I thought. And a lot of those did come with some sort of extra cool trinkets or special features or something. So I thought that was really cool. Um, And also like we're all nerds. So like, even though I'm not necessarily the biggest collector's edition collector over the years, you do end up accumulating some really cool items. And I actually found a couple like graphic novels that I realized are like pretty sweet collector's editions. So I wanted to focus on those for my list as well. And oh. uh, we'll get into that later. But Dude, this I was a fun one, but it was a I little didn't tough even for think me. Think about graphic novel collector's editions. <laughs> oh, well, that's I had I had two of them that were too cool not to mention. So that's where I was at. I'm not going to change my uh, order of things here. So um, anyway. All right. Well, I guess I have two honorable mentions. Uh, so uh, I do as well. So I can okay. go first. Um, yep. The first one I wanted to mention, uh, I put it on the list, but I feel like it's a bit of a cheat because it's one of those collector's editions box sets. But I feel like it might have been something they put together just to move some DVDs, <laughs> like sort of like, sure. well, we have a backlog of these DVDs. Let's group them together and sell them. But that's the... Uh, Jim Henson's fantasy film collection, um, which is something that I bought, I think, from a Barnes and Noble a while ago. But it's basically a box set of like Labyrinth, Dark Crystal and uh, the movie Mirror Mask for people who are familiar with that one. And it's really just like three of like the more serious fantasy movies that were put put out by Jim Henson's uh, studio, but it's a really cool box set. It does look cool on the shelf. And one of my favorite parts about this is it actually came with a free comic, so to speak. It came with actually a uh, small pamphlet that was a preview of the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth manga that they put out 
so many years ago, probably a decade ago, to be honest. But right. uh, basically, you have it's this small like comic book, uh, comic book sort of like floppy comic as far as like the thickness. But essentially, on one side, it's a pre it's a preview, like kind of the first chapter of uh, this labyrinth series that they put out that focused on uh, Jareth the. Uh, goblin king and kind of like some of his plots and then you flip the pamphlet over and it is a manga preview of a dark crystal uh manga they put out and i especially loved the dark crystal story in there because it really focused on this uh war that was going on between the gelflings and the uh skexies and uh it at the end of that manga it there's a bit where the uh giant like creepy beetle creatures from dark crystal start to invade the gelflings lair but it's pretty cool because this uh this story talked about how the gelflings are not a warrior race they are an artisan race and how they had to use their art and crafting abilities to fight against the skexies so they did cool stuff like weaving like giant sort of like barbed wire-esque nets and stuff like they use their artistic skills to fight off the the gelf or the skexies and i thought that was a really cool concept so yeah yeah um yeah i don't have that but that i mean i don't have i just realized like we're not going to match a lot here (laughs) no probably not (laughs) um all right so the one um this one i don't have i just thought it was cool um, and they do this a lot is like video game consoles that are themed towards games. Um, so back, uh, I want to say, Oh, right, right. Yeah. They, they did, a, they, every now and then there'd be like a video game console that'll come out and it'll be like the halo theme or the call of duty theme or the Assassin's Creed theme mm-hmm. or something. And the, the, the Xbox or the PlayStation or whatever would be themed specifically for, for that. Um, the original Xbox, um, the OG Xbox, they came out with a green Halo edition and it wasn't like just a regular green. It was like that see-through green. I just thought yeah. it was bad. I just thought it was badass. It had the Halo logo on it. The Halo logo was on the controller itself. Um, I just thought it was cool. That's why it's an honorable mention because I didn't have it. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you actually had that one or not, but no, uh, I've on. seen that uh, a million times. A friend of ours, a friend a cool... of ours got it. A friend of ours got it, but I did not. It is such a cool Xbox, and uh, I think I can speak for us all when I say, like, they really need to bring see-through tech back. Like, give us some more see-through plastic uh, game consoles and computers and stuff. That was a really fun fad back in the day. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, man, what else you got? Okay, so my next honorable mention I included because... It is a cool piece of collection collector's mumbo jumbo, but I don't think it's technically a collector's edition. And uh, this was a gift to me um, by our brother Scott for my birthday one year. But he got me a copy of the Death of Superman Blu-ray, the DC animated movie uh, portraying that story. And uh, I always thought it was cool because that one came with a uh, little Superman statue. And it's one of those things like it's about it's like three and three quarters inches tall. Like it's a pretty small statue, but it looks pretty badass because it has that sort of like DC animation style and it's Superman standing there like on a pile of rubble and his clothes are all ripped up and stuff just like he was 
you know, in the midst of duking it out with Doomsday. And uh, I just always thought that was a really cool collector's piece that I had. So, yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, what is that again? Sorry, just so I can type it. Oh, on. sorry. The, the the Death of Superman Blu-ray that came with the Superman statue. Yeah. Um, And that's what I'm talking about. That's like every now and then there's these really cool, like, things that have whatever. Um, yeah. All right. So mine would be Star Wars related. Um, I'm surprised, surprised it's not higher on my list and it's a uh, <laughs> um, and it falls here. Um, this is the Star Wars Blu-ray collection. Nice. Um, this is the Star Wars originally. So George Lucas announces at Celebration 5 that he is going to um, that they're going to release uh, Star Wars on Blu-ray. And he announced it a year in advance, and he goes, Star Wars will be on Blu-ray this time. Awesome. Um, stating that, that's what made me upgrade my tech. Because I've always used, Star Wars was like, oh, Star Wars is on DVD? Time to get DVD player. Star Wars is going to be on Blu-ray? Time to get a Blu-ray player. Um, Star Wars is going to be digital? Got to get Disney+. Plus. Um, but they released the movies, so you could buy them. Like, there was like, you buy the movies, right? Or you buy the collector's edition, and the collector's edition came with so much extra content, like the doc, like so many documentaries that we didn't know about, um, pop culture features, um, deleted yeah. scenes that, you know, just the box art wasn't the coolest, but it was the collection of the extra stuff. And the reason this makes an honorable mention for me loving Star Wars so much is that every time Star Wars has dropped some kind of collector's edition, I, I always grab it because of the documentary behind the scenes things. This was just like a megaton of stuff. That's why I had to make sure I grabbed it. So, yeah, it's yeah, an awesome pick. Um, I haven't, uh, I haven't, I don't own this one, but uh, I know you've shown me some of the special features and kind of like seeing deleted scenes from A New Hope and stuff. It just feels so legendary, like seeing that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, yeah this is a classic pick. I'm actually surprised this isn't higher on your list, though, to be honest. It's just because I have. You know, I bought the collector's edition of the VHSs when they dropped, and then they re-released the special editions. And if you bought the collector's edition, you got the episode two featurette documentary, and, th and that was on VHS. And then they released them on DVD, and if you bought the collector's edition, you got the Empire of Dreams documentary. It's just, it's constantly, what's the next collector's edition i'm gonna buy of star wars and since i bought those movies over and over and over again to get all this extra content <laughs> yeah that's why it's not higher on my list so nice anyway you were saying your next pick yeah so this is my first pick uh this first one's pretty episode. goofy but uh it's one of the collector's editions that i've uh enjoyed probably the most out of my list and that is the Dimension Collector's Series Edition of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back on DVD. <laughs> and this one's pretty funny, but it's one of those things where Jay and Silent Bob came out on DVD. And uh, for whatever reason, they released this two-disc DVD collector's edition of it. And it's one of those things where I feel like I've been to multiple friends' houses, and for some reason, a lot of people have a copy of this. And uh, like I said, I've watched this movie so many times. Like, I've probably watched this more, maybe not, but it, this is up there as, like, one of the ones that I've watched the most on my list. And uh, if you want to talk about extras, like, 
this was kind of, I feel like, in the prime of the Kevin Smith, Jay and Silent Bob fandom when this came out, but it was also... It wasn't pre-internet, but it was pre-internet in the way it is now, where there wasn't podcasts and YouTube videos going on all over the place. And uh, they, you know, they packed this DVD with so many extras. If you want to talk about director commentary or deleted scenes or behind the scenes featurettes, like if you turn this thing over and look at the special features they just go on and on. Like there's so much crap they packed into the second disc of this DVD and it's awesome. And it kind of, it kind of show fakes or showcases the fandom of, uh, Kevin Smith's, uh, fans basically, because these are people who wanted all these special features. And, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just a fun one. Like I love this collector's edition, but it's definitely one of the goofier picks on my list, you know? Oh, I gotcha. That is probably worth a chunk of money, by the way. Um, it might be. And I say that because I just found out that the Blu-ray, you told me that the Blu-ray of uh, Dogma, Dogma is really, really valuable. Um, so, and it has so to I do think with the licensing agreements and stuff, not the Blu-ray, yeah, the DVD. The DVD, yeah, DVD copy of Dogma, as far as I know, is actually worth uh, quite a bit. And it's because of, it is a licensing thing where the studio they made dogma with um didn't make a, as many copies of it compared to some of the other kevin smith movies so it's actually kind of rare and uh, if you go to like a half price books or something like that and you hunt down a dogma dvd you will notice the price difference so well uh, fun I stuff bought it, i bought it when it came out so i have it <laughs> there you go <laughs> so there's that um yeah all right so my first one for the night is and this is a weird one it's the halo wars collector's edition now halo wars is not your standard halo video game it is a rts or real time uh, real time strategy game um what's interesting about this being um a collector's edition is instead of the game comment content there's a trinket it came with and when i say a trinket it came with a coaster um, it is a UNSC, so the United Nations Space Command, that's the military branch, a coaster for the ship that's the main ship that's in the game. Like the captain would have on his desk, that's the coaster that he'd have in the in the shots. Um, nice. That coaster is there with my Xbox and has been there ever since. It's the coaster I always set up my drinks on. I all I constantly use that coaster always <laughs> it's one nice. of my fa it's one of my favorite like things to just have like right next to my xbox or like when it's game time it's like i have a place for my drink that's where it goes that's my xbox coaster. <laughs> um <laughs> that's and awesome. it's so funny because for a collector's edition eh, it came with a steel case for the game which those are cool but ultimately that coaster is awesome and i love it <laughs> so that's great um, yeah anyway go ahead what's your next one yeah, so my next one is, um, I don't think this one has a special name. I pulled it off the shelf earlier, and it didn't really, but uh, it's, at one point I bought a Ghostbusters 1 and 2 double feature box set, um, sure. and it's one of those things where, like... Is that it, what we're it, talking it, about, Ghostbusters? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. So it looks really awesome, like, the... Uh, the it has like this outside like slipcover thing that's green and looks like uh, slime coming down and stuff and uh, it has both movies of course and when you talk about special features 
it's not super extensive with the special features. Like I think each DVD has like just a couple episodes of the real Ghostbusters cartoon, but the the box set did come with uh, they called it a movie scrapbook, but it's yeah. essentially just like this cool little booklet that comes with it that has information about the uh, like the production. Um, it has some of the concept art. It has some of the original storyboards in there for uh, the original Ghostbusters movie. And that's the type of stuff I love. Like I love seeing that behind the scenes stuff, especially the storyboards, because it shows the the original Ghostbuster suit designs are much different than what we got in the movie. Like all of the characters had like these goofy helmets on and stuff. And uh, I just think stuff like that is super fun. So uh, this is one of my favorite, favorite collector's editions that I have. Right on. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the next one for me is aliens. Um, nice. They released, there are, so at the time that this came out, there were four aliens films. This was a nine-disc Alien box set. Um, this released, when this came out, it's a massive box. Like, when you, so I'm 5'10". When I, I think when you open this up, it's almost five feet long. Um, so it's almost as tall as me, the way it opens, opens up. It literally just keeps on going. Um, <laughs> so it's all four movies. So it's the original film plus so it's the original film plus director's cut the second movie plus director's cut the third movie plus director's cut fourth movie plus director's cut and that then there's awesome. a documentary and then there's a documentary disc for every single one so it's making of each one all the way across the board um it's it's one of the coolest box sets i have all the artwork is super creepy they have dossiers on all the crew members and like specs on the ships and stuff like that it's just one of the coolest box sets um just to have it on the shelf um i know that like if you were to buy like if you were to be like oh i'll just buy all the dvds or blu-rays now it'd be a tiny little box but it, you wouldn't get this size thing anymore but it was it was really cool it's one of my favorites just to have on the shelf but that sounds awesome and sounds epic and that sounds like you know, if you have like your desert, your desert island like box sets, that would be a high contender. Because when you think about it, you have Ridley Scott, James Cameron, David Fincher, Joss Whedon. Like that's like a really great group of directors to have their director cuts. An awesome franchise. Like that's a really cool thing to have. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. What's what else you got? Okay, so uh, my next one that I wanted to go with, uh, this one's a little bit off the beaten path, um, but one of my favorite, it's, it might take me a bit to get to exactly what this is, but one of my favorite um, fantasy artists and uh, comic book artists when it comes to the history of uh, comics and sci-fi and all that is uh, Frank Frazetta. He's done, yeah. like, everything. He's done, like, Conan. He's done old like tales from the crypt and creepy comics he's done some mainstream comic stuff but he is one of the best uh just painters and concept artists and cover artists from like the 20th century he's amazing talk to any art nerd frank frazetta is just awesome and uh there was a while where image comics was doing they would I can't remember what it was, they'd call, they called it. It was like World of Frazetta or something, but they were doing they would basically take a um, 
classic Frank Frazetta painting that may or may not have had a story to go with it. And they would just do a comic book around the imagery in that painting. Um, and I have a couple graphic or I have like one graphic novel that's like a collected story, collected uh, group of stories that they put out like that. But the one that I'm talking about specifically is Image Comics put out Frank Frazetta's uh, Death De Dealer graphic novel. And that was called Death Dealer Shadows of Mirahan and uh, I was at a convention once and I was kind of perusing Artist Alley and I came across this one comic artist booth um, who was involved with uh, or sorry a comic writers booth who was involved with this project and I believe like I was looking at the liner notes on this hardcover that I have and I believe it was Josh Ortega who was the writer of this story sure. um, and he had this beautiful hardcover cover version of this Death Dealer comic. It looked awesome. And uh, I was looking at it. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, I want to buy this. And he, he goes, well, you can buy this version because I'm selling it for cheap. And uh, the reason he was selling it for cheaper was because it had like a slight dent on the front of it. And I was like, I don't care. So he gave that to me and he signed his name like super huge on the cover and it was awesome. But this is one of those things where it's like a hardcover book and uh, it's Frank Frazetta's death dealer. So it's a really dark sort of like high fantasy story. You have Nat Jones artwork that's inside this thing that just looks great. Like the art looks great. The color looks great. The story's awesome. Um, the, it's a little bit like for this hardcover, they enlarged it a little bit. It's not your standard floppy comic book dimensions. It's a little bit bigger. So you're able to open it up and enjoy the artwork artwork a little more. They got fancy with this thing. They have like a uh, ribbon in it. Like it's some classical novel or whatever that has the ribbon bookmark. And it has this giant like hard slip disc thing that the whole thing fits in or slip cover thing that the whole thing fits in and it just looks epic it looks great on the shelf it's one of my favorite sort of graphic novels when it just comes to the presence of it so this one had to make my list and then it's one of those things like of course they're going to have a covers gallery at the end of this graphic novel for the covers when the individual comics were coming out when the series was released but you get besides that you also get progress photos from like the pencil sketch to the final cover as well as some like concept art and stuff and uh this one's just like a really awesome epic feeling um collector's edition you know what i mean so yeah yeah, yeah. no that sounds awesome um i don't actually know this comic um but and you'll have to show me a picture of it sometime or maybe show it to me sometime it just sounds really cool yeah i i can show it to you uh you know, sometime when you're at my place or whatever. But it also is like if you if you Google like Frank Frazetta's Death Dealer, you've seen the image like a million times. It's like yeah. this dark medieval warrior carrying an axe, riding a horse, and he just looks like so badass. But you've I guarantee you've seen the image a million times everywhere. So, yeah, um, there is. All right. So my next one for the night, this was a big deal when this came out. It's another Halo thing. Um my last Halo one for the night, but this one was too big to not discuss. When Halo 3 came out, the collector's edition that they released for it was the Halo 3 Master Chief helmet. Um, this It was a really big deal when this came out. It was like a, it, 
a sixty dollar game, but if you bought the Halo, it was like a hundred and ten or something like that. If you got the helmet with it, um, but the idea was is that the helmet opens up and all the games fit inside of it. So if yeah, been, so if you've been collecting the games, all the games fit inside the helmet. Um, in terms of a box set, that is one heck of a box set to have on the shelf. It's not big enough for me to wear, but if you open it up, all the games fit inside. Um, so really, really cool, in my opinion, to have on the shelf. Um, yeah. And uh, I know a lot of my friends picked it up. Um, they're all numbered, too. I don't know how many they made, but in terms of a collector's edition, it's they're all numbered. So... Um, at some point, they'll probably be worth something. Um, I've never gone back and tried looking them up, but you know, it makes it makes me wonder how much the one one seven one goes on eBay. Oh. You know, <laughs> but and that uh, was probably owned by an employee, though. You know? True, true. This is this is a great pick. Um, I don't own this myself, but uh, Drew, I know you do. I feel like uh, some of our other friends or brothers might have this one yeah. as well. But I've been to a number of people's houses that I've seen this. It looks awesome. Like if it's sitting on your entertainment center or like a really nice spot on your shelf, it just looks epic and cool. And the only thing, the only thing that I don't like about this pick is that you can't wear the helmet. But yes. I do understand it's made to fit the games and kind of serves a more practical purpose but every time i see it i'm just like i wish i could put that on you know <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah all right um what's your second to last one for the night man yeah so my second to last one is the only other uh graphic novel i have on my list but that is the teenage mutant ninja turtles ultimate collection volume one so there was uh, some years back, I went on a huge, like huge Ninja Turtles kick. Um, I don't know if it was before or after I decided to like put a lot of work into a Raphael cosplay, but I did put together like a really, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think a pretty awesome Raphael cosplay around the same time. Um, but I just got like really into the Ninja Turtles for a while and I really got into Eastman and Laird's sort of like how they just kind of put together this like indie black and white, really kind of like, uh, you know, scratchy, like DIY feeling comic book in kind of like their living room. And uh, it went on to be like this cultural phenomenon to the point of like, we're still awaiting like Seth Rogen's Ninja Turtles movie that's going to be coming out soon. And it's like this amazing franchise that's lived on. But kind of around the same time I was going through this big TMNT kick, uh, IDW started releasing these massive like tome graphic novels of the original Ninja Turtles comics. And uh, I bought the first one and that's my next thing on my list because it's like, Basically, it's a collection of I want to say volume one was like the first eight comics of the series. And uh, it's one of those things where you read through and it's like a big like it's this textbook size, like hardcover graphic novel. And you read through the original comics and it's awesome. But before and after each comic, you get. Uh, you get pros, you get like Eastman and Laird's commentary on what was going through their heads and some of the backstories of things. And you get co concept art and uh, pre preliminary sketches and you get 
an insight into the creators and what their thought process and what their creative process was for making this amazing comic book. And it's one of my favorite things. And it was one of those things where to go back and uh, reread some of those original comics, it was like a really cool experience to be able to read it and kind of it's kind of like akin to a director's commentary where you have the commentary of the creators and what they were thinking as they set everything up. It's such an awesome thing. It sits on the bookshelf so well. And uh, I only have volume one of the series. And uh, a big reason for that is each volume is $50, which, (laughs) uh, you know, I don't always want to drop 50 bucks on one graphic novel, but it's also one of those things where, after I read through that, I started just kind of collecting individual issues of uh, the classic Ninja Turtles books. But it to me, it's like those first core comics in the series are just so classic when you have like the Turtles like first face off against Shredder and you have like the first sort of iteration of Baxter Stockman and the uh, Krang aliens and the Mouser droids and stuff like I love like the early Ninja Turtle stuff so much so this was such a cool thing to read through you know yeah, right on um, all right so my next one is the Stargate gate box um, nice when I was, there was a point where I was like getting really, really super into Stargate. Like I was like borrowing them from a friend, that kind of stuff. And it was like, I really need to have my own set of these DVDs. So I was looking at, you know, I got to start getting them, but it's Stargate SG-1. So I owned the original movie. Stargate SG-1 is 10 seasons. And then Atlantis is five seasons. And then Universe is two seasons. So I was like, man, that's a lot of money on one shot. Well, they released what's called a gate box for Stargate SG-1, which is the core show. So all 10 seasons in one collected set. It's So they're DVD, but the box itself is this massive cube <laughs> with, um, and it's all based on Egyptology and stuff like that. There's a lot of Egyptology stuff in the in the show, so there's a lot of hieroglyphics and stuff like that. So the entire box is covered in hieroglyphics and like the gate addresses and stuff when they were finding them on the cartouches and in the ancient ruins and everything. And then on the front of it is this massive Stargate logo. Um, It's one of the coolest box sets just sitting on my shelf right now. Um, It's one of my favorites. Just even if I'm not watching the show, it's just really cool to just like have it sitting there. So nice. I've Uh, seen this on your shelf and it does look really epic. So uh, that's it's really heavy too. you pull it out. You're just like, oh, I'm going to watch some Stargate, and you pull it out, and it's just massive, and you lift the top <laughs> up. You basically lift this cube. You take the top off like a regular box, and then now you have to, like, pull out the DVDs and sift through them. Like, it's, nice. it's well-organized and stuff, but it's like, holy cow, you know? So That's great. Anyway, um, what's your final one for the night? Yeah, so my final pick, um, I feel like this one is kind of commonplace, but it definitely fits the mold, and it's probably one of my most prized collector's editions of anything. But I went with actually, and probably no surprise to you, Drew, I went with the Man of Steel Target exclusive Blu-ray. And this is back when Man of Steel first came out on video. And you had like, yeah, you you definitely have this one too. And it's it's one of those things where like, you could get the, the movie at any store, but the Target exclusive Blu-ray was just so cool looking because it had like, it looks like a hardcover book. Like it has 
a hardcover and you flip it open BBS and you have like too. what's that i picked up the bbs one too yeah i have so i have like the man of steel the bbs and the justice league one. Oh, i don't I, think oh, they, they ever for justice league but that's right yeah i have the weed and cut of justice league oh. for it but it's one of those like it looked good on the shelf at the time i don't think they ever released a snyder cut version of it because i would love that to like complete it but it's one of those things where it just like it looks like a hardcover book. It feels like a hardcover book. It's cool. You flip it open. You have your DVD on one side. You have your Blu-ray on the other side. You have like, I think there was a special features disc as well. In between all that, you had a booklet inside that had concept art. And uh, it wasn't like super heavy on the information, but it was kind of just a really cool almost like art of man of steel book that I just really appreciated for the collectability of this thing. And it was one of those things where like I could pick up the regular DVD of this movie at Walmart for 20 bucks, or I could spend 30 bucks at target and get this awesome collectible thing. And it's one of those things where they actually did put out a steel book box set for man of steel at the time. But I actually thought that this target exclusive blu-ray actually looked a lot cooler than the steelbook one so that's what i went with but uh this one's awesome this is where it's like out of my list i don't know if i've watched jay and silent bob strike back or man of steel i don't know which one i've watched more times but i've watched both of those movies countless times and they're yeah. very different films even though they both fit in within the uh superhero realm which is pretty funny but um yeah, I've watched this so many times. Uh, there's definitely like some awesome like behind the scenes like commentary and featurettes and stuff. And uh, this is one of my favorite. Just it's not. I don't think it's the most incredible collector's edition thing, but this is one of the ones that means the most to me. Uh, that's on my shelf. So there you uh, go. Well, keeping with the superhero comic book theme, my final pick of the night is the Batman '66 Blu-ray box set nice this was a collection <laughs> completion kind of a thing like i was always like man i really hope they re released that on blu-ray and then they announced they were and then they were like talking about how limited of a set it was going to be so it's the entirety of the batman 66 series so all 120 whatever episodes it is um it's it's really organized really well so it's all it's the three seasons how it's set up and then they have like the book explaining like the full like obviously the watch order, but the description of everything. And then, uh, so what's on what disc. So like, it's the way it's set up. It comes with these like collector cards for all the characters with bios and all that stuff. The box is gorgeous in the standard. And it's, it's exactly what you'd expect it to be. It's also a numbered one, like the halo helmet. Like there's only so many that were made. So that's, so it's all numbered. I don't know which number I have, but, um, it also came with a hot wheel of the, adam adam west batmobile um but yeah like in terms of being a batman fan and needing to have that on my uh shelf that was a huge grab um that i had to make sure i had in my collection so yeah awesome yeah. this one is this one's awesome um i don't own this um i've watched a handful of the classic 66 adam west batman episodes but i have not watched through this collection obviously i haven't seen every episode or anything but i feel like this is such a cool dvd or blu-ray box set to have because it's it's a piece of history 
And it's like, it's not only a piece of history in the fact that when 66 Batman came out, it was a special time in the world and in America and in cinema. And I feel like this is kind of a cool time capsule of like that cool, like 60s pop art feel of the time. But also like, this is a piece of history because this is like a one of a kind box set because Batman 66 was like never released as a collection for a long time because of the weird licensing agreements yeah, that had to go up. on. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like you have Warner brothers and DC on one time, and then you have a handful of like TV networks and stuff and the rights are shared between them. And it, I guess it was a mess, but eventually they actually were able to release this thing. So it's kind of a cool bit of cinematic history in a couple different ways so uh yeah that's a really cool uh pick to go out on yeah um well yeah in the realm of pick to go out on peter what are we doing next week because it's your choice <laughs> right on so uh this is a list uh it actually came to me the other day and i think this would be really fun to do because we've done our top five just directors of film in general but i thought it would be cool to talk about our top five animated film directors and uh this is like something that I think would be fun to talk about because you can get into stuff like Studio Ghibli. You can get into like Pixar, like John Lasseter, stuff like that. You can get into some of the classic Disney movies. You can get into a handful of other things. Uh, I just think this would be a fun list to talk about. We might talk about some animated movies that are off the beaten path, but also some sort of familiar favorites of ours. And uh, Drew, I don't know if you'll think this one is hard, but it doesn't have to be because you could always just go like, these are my top five favorite animated films and just look up the directors of those. You know, that would be a valid route to do as well. You know I don't know I mean? if it's going to be hard so much as it's going to be require research. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely like it definitely probably will. But uh, I think it'll be fun to kind of go through and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, all right, man. Um, that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. So animated film directors next week. Um, yeah. So everybody, uh, you want to end this episode, Peter, toss it in the can. Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> all right. Um, everyone do us all a favor. Check out our website, top five report.com. They will find links to all of our social media, Twitter and Facebook, along with a link to our email, top five report at gmail.com. Uh, you can interact with the show there. Social media, either way works. We are on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, Audible, Amazon. You can subscribe to us in those places. If you do, you will not miss a single episode. You can also uh, leave us a review. We love those five stars, but we understand criticism because it helps us get better and it makes the words we say feel important. You can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Drew3927. Uh, Peter, what about you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Ninja Pierre, and that's where I will be talking about this book I'm reading about anti-gravity. I just can't put it down. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a stretch. Anyway, um, all right, everybody. Uh, for the Top 5 Report, I'm Drew. I'm Peter. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.